On the morning of May 9th, 1974, 53-year-old Madame Quack left her home and embarked on a significant mission. Her footsteps echoed purposefully along the familiar paths, leading her to her sister-in-law's residence on Upper Perak Road. The purpose of this visit? To reclaim a considerable debt, an old sum of $2,000. Back then, this sum carried considerable significance, translating to over $11,000 in today's value when considering inflation. Such a substantial amount had the potential to completely change one's quality of life. Madam Quack and her sister-in-law, Sim Ju Kiao, had arranged to meet for a financial settlement, a planned resolution to their monetary dealings. Yet what began as a rendezvous meant for settling debts quickly spiraled into an appalling turn of events. Accounts depict an abrupt shift from a simple discussion to a scene of horror. By the meeting's end, it etched an unprecedented and ghastly chapter in Singapore's history. A horrific murder case which marked the nation's first instance of dismemberment since gaining independence in 1965. Madam Quack's fate was beyond gruesome. She wasn't just brutally dismembered. Pieces of her body were also carelessly abandoned and left to rot across Singapore. What's most disturbing about this crime is the heinous act of not just ending a life, but desecrating it further by scattering the victim's remains as macabre markers across the cityscape. As the police uncovered evidence of Madam Quack's murder, it led them down a chilling trail that unveiled disturbing findings in locations such as the Kalang River and even within the confines of Simju Kiao's own home. You're listening to Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast. Brought to you by MediaCorp and produced by 1UP Media. This episode may contain sensitive details and graphic imagery. Listener discretion is advised. In the book, The Economics of Inequality, French economist Thomas Piketty mentions that in the past, the world of investing was exclusively meant for the rich, people with so much wealth and influence that it could span across multiple lifetimes. That's exactly true for people living in the 1970s, an era when access to investments or insurance remained a privilege unattainable for the average person in Singapore. While the wealthy had access to these specialized financial services, the general workforce relying on fixed interest rates from banks and financial institutions, had limited avenues for wealth-building opportunities. You see, in those days, people felt more comfortable when they entrusted their life savings to familiar faces rather than large financial institutions. There was a prevailing distrust towards banks, even though there were no recorded instances of a bank fleeing with people's life savings. The personal connection and perceived reliability within these smaller community-driven schemes instilled a greater sense of assurance and comfort among many people, which was one of the biggest reasons why tontine schemes thrived during that period. The way tontine schemes work is very similar to that of a lottery or a group annuity. The main goal is to create a group savings fund where every participant contributes regularly, which then accumulates and generates returns 
typically in the form of interest or dividends. What distinguishes Tontine schemes is their unique yet slightly morbid redistribution method. As members pass away, their shares are reallocated among the surviving participants until the last surviving member ultimately receives the entirety of the fund. While it sounds promising, these arrangements are not without risks. The dependency on consistent contributions and the reliance on fellow participants' continued involvement pose inherent vulnerabilities. If any of the members failed to contribute on time or made premature withdrawals, the stability of these schemes could be compromised, impacting the expected returns. From the reports, it's pretty clear that both Madam Quack and her sister-in-law, Sim Ju Kiao, were part of a tontine scheme. In fact, Madam Quack even took a leading role in overseeing the entire operation of this financial arrangement. Some critics say that because Madam Quack was the head of the Tontine group, she might have amassed considerable wealth at the possible expense of her sister-in-law. In these schemes, the organizers or administrators benefit through various avenues. They often charge administrative fees, which would either be a percentage of the total funds or a fixed amount. Furthermore, organizers usually have control over how the pooled funds are invested. In some instances, they might also claim a share of the profits generated from these funds, offering them an extra source of income besides the managing fees. Sources available don't specify the reasons behind Sim Ju Kiao owing money to Madam Quek. Yet the likeliest scenario points to Sim potentially missing a payment or two, so she must have promised Madam Quek that she'd pay up to stay in the scheme. Multiple sources indicate that Madam Quack failed to return home after her meeting with Sim, prompting her family to report her missing to the authorities. Two days later, the police received a report about a grim discovery. A pair of legs along Aljunit Road, later confirmed by pathologists to belong to a woman. This revelation swiftly led the police to draw connections between the two cases, sparking a search for Sim Ju Kiao. The following day, when the police arrived at Sim's residence, they were greeted by an overwhelming stench that threatened to repel even the most seasoned investigators. The smell was an ominous precursor to the horrors concealed within. And it lingered, thickly in the air, almost suffocating. Inspector Daniel Tan from the Special Investigation Section confronted Sim who he described to have a nervous, yet determined look on her face. I want to tell you everything, she uttered, her voice unwavering as she cast a glance towards the ground. To the police, this was an act of confession, and she was immediately arrested. Sim led the authorities to the spots where she had concealed Madame Quack's belongings. With each step, the tension escalated, the weight of the unfolding revelations palpable in the air. Then, with an eerie calmness, she led Inspector Tan into the kitchen. And there in the corner, she pointed to a chopper that was used to dismember Madam Quack. Where did you do it? Where did you cut it up? Inspector Tan asked with a firm voice. She directed him to the bathroom, admitting to the gruesome acts that took place within. Yet, as Inspector Tan carefully examined the bathroom, skepticism began to creep in. 
looking at the walls and the crevices in the bathroom floor tiles. There were no signs of blood to be found. Online, there are very few photographs that depict Sim Ju Kiao's appearance. Among the few available, one particular image captures her emotive moment, tears streaming down her face as she's escorted out of court upon receiving her sentence. Captured in the photograph, she appears with short shoulder-length hair and dons a sleeveless patterned shirt. Her hands shield her eyes while she turns away from the camera as the photographer snaps the photo. Sim appeared reluctant to be photographed, possibly aware of her actions or feeling ashamed for being caught in a lie, especially after her own daughter called her out to tell the truth. On the day of the murders, May 9th, Inspector Tan called Sim in for questioning as Madame Quack was last seen at a residence. At the time, no one knew about Madame Quack's death or Sim's connection to it. Hence, Sim was merely requested to visit the station and give a statement on the missing person's case. As Sim faced the interview, her daughter sat outside the room, probably because there was no one at home to look after the child. It was not uncommon during the 1970s for parents to bring their children along in such situations. However, in this case, it might have cost Sim's freedom, as it was her daughter who alerted the authorities about her mother's lies. So, where did you go, Mom? You've been out all morning. You haven't said a word. As Sim conversed with the police, her daughter could overhear their exchanges and noticed a conflicting story emerging. Her mother, Sim, was lying to the police. Then came a sudden knock at the door, interrupting their conversation. Mom, stop lying to the policeman. That's not what you told me. Reports suggest that Sim had shared two different accounts of the incident with her daughter, Quack Pekia. Initially, she mentioned that Madame Quack had arranged to meet her at a bus stop, intending to resolve a financial issue. However, a car suddenly arrived carrying a man and a woman. Madame Quack invited Sim into the car, but Sim declined. Later, she altered her story, stating that Madame Quack had visited her home accompanied by a couple. According to Sim, a disagreement over money later escalated between the couple and Madame Quack. Sim alleged that the man then attacked Madame Quack with a knife and punched her in the eye when she attempted to intervene. In response, she ran out of the house and upon her return, found it empty. Inspector Tan then accompanied Sim to her residence but found no discernible odour or evidence of foul play. This was the same day that Quack was reported missing but two days before the discovery of her dismembered legs. The timeline raised questions about the circumstances leading to Quack's demise and the subsequent dismemberment. Did Sim cut off Quack's legs on the day of the murders and conceal them immediately, or did she wait for two days before she began the dismemberment? On May 11, 1974, Sim was promptly arrested and eventually confessed to the crime. With mounting evidence and being called out for lying by her own daughter in front of the police, Sim had no option but to reveal the truth. 
She guided the police to the various locations where she committed the crime and where she had hid the rest of the body. However, the police were completely unprepared for the horrific truth. Sim hadn't just dismembered Madame Quack into two parts, but into multiple pieces. She first led the police to a massive earthen jar placed on the ground level, and upon opening it, she took out a plastic bag that had the logo of the renowned department store, Yao Han. The bag bore dried bloodstains and emitted a strong pungent odor. Upon opening it, they discovered Madame Quack's upper torso inside. Later, a similar plastic bag was found in another jar upstairs near the kitchen, which contained the lower portion of Madame Quack's torso. As Sim was leading the police around the house, another team of investigators scoured the streets of Singapore in search of the remaining body parts, particularly the head and the arms. Right when they were on the verge of calling off the search, their efforts were rewarded when they detected a foul odour emanating from the vicinity of the Kalang River Bank. Tracing the stench, it led them to a cardboard parcel along the riverbank, within which Madame Quack's head and arms were discovered. During the police interrogation, Sim made a grisly confession to the sequence of events. She claimed that when Madame Quack visited her home to collect the money she owed her, an argument broke out between the two women. Madame Quack was extremely firm that she would be collecting the money, and as their voices grew louder, Sim's apprehension soared. Suddenly, a surge of rage seized Sim, and her hands tightened around Madame Quack's neck, a desperate attempt to quell the escalating confrontation. Eventually, Madame Quack collapsed and lay motionless, leaving Sim to grapple with the horrifying reality. Driven by desperation, she resorted to a chilling method, employing a meat chopper to gruesomely dismember the body, forcefully hammering it down with a block of wood. She claimed to have witnessed fishmongers at the market employing a similar technique to cut their produce and use the same technique to dismember Madame Quack's corpse. However, Inspector Tan's observation of the absence of bloodstains in the bathroom raises intriguing questions. Did she conduct the dismemberment elsewhere, or did she meticulously sanitize the bathroom to erase any traces of her heinous act? On May the 13th, 1974, news of the murder spread throughout Singapore and the air outside the Supreme Court buzzed with anticipation. Approximately 500 onlookers had gathered, hoping to catch a glimpse of the cold-hearted killer. Sim was eventually brought into the stark confines of the courtroom and charged with first-degree murder. A week later, on May 20th, a second mention of her case led to Sim being remanded for psychiatric evaluation at Woodbridge Hospital. By July 30th, a two-day preliminary inquiry convened which ultimately determined her committed to stand trial. Six months later, Sim, in a courtroom heavy with the weight of anticipation and scrutiny, faced a verdict. Convicted of manslaughter and deliberately concealing evidence, Sim Joo Kiao was sentenced to 10 years in prison. At only 45 years old when she was jailed, 
Sim would have been released at 55. Today, Sim would be 94 years old. However, her current status, whether she's dead or alive, remains shrouded in mystery. Heinous, an Asian true crime podcast, is brought to you by MediaCorp and 1UP Media. This episode was produced and written by Guangjin, edited by Alex, narrated by Jason, audio experience by Ethan Sam, additional engineering by Ashley from 1UP Media. Special thanks to executive producer Danny Cordy from MediaCorp. Thank you for listening. We'll see you in the next one.